Hello and welcome to another episode of the Medicine 360 podcast. This episode is titled Hard Talk. My name is Katie Witcher and I'm a second year medical student studying at the University of Bristol. I'm very lucky to be joined today by Dr. Annette Welshman. She has worked internationally with Lady Ryder, setting up palliative care programmes in Italy, Albania and Poland, lobbying governments for both care of the dying and relief of suffering. She has been vice chairman of the European Association for Palliative Care and taught palliative care in various European universities. Dr. Welshman, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. My first question is, in your experience, how important is language when speaking to patients and their families in palliative care? Well, obviously, having worked in different parts of Europe, I didn't always speak the language, uh, if we're talking about linguistic language. It was not necessary to be able to speak the language of some patients when they're extremely ill, with their families perhaps, but not with the actual patient. The patient recognises your empathetic demeanour and the way they know from just the way you look at them, the way you sometimes touch them, how you can understand their degree of suffering and that you certainly wish to do something about that. But the language of suffering is universal. And wherever you are, as a medical professional, you can always, depending on how you can understand your patient, you can always rely on the way you're looking at that patient and give them the support they need just by a look. I know that sounds silly, but it actually is the beginning, obviously, of your care program for them, but you must obtain that first. Thank you. So you've been working internationally, which you mentioned. Were there any particular cultural barriers that you encountered when delivering palliative care? Yes, of course there was. They were usually religious. They were based on religion and on cultural sentiments in various countries. And it was often the case that you were treating a patient who, first of all, had no idea of their diagnosis and certainly had no idea that they were dying. They were always very hopeful that we would walk in as a team and cure them because we were foreigners, because we brought them medical intervention that they did not have access to. So they thought their day of recovery was there the minute we walked into the room. We had to be very careful and very respectful of the family wishes because more often than not, we would be sidelined by the family and asked not to tell them they have cancer or any other terminal diagnosis, to tell them they're going to be all right, and certainly not to tell them that they're dying, which is quite different to what we do in this country. So it made things not so much difficult for me because I've only basically worked overseas, so I understand that. But for the team I took with me, they found that very difficult. And they were quite shocked, actually, until they became accustomed to use the correct language around dying and cancer. So, for example, we would never use the word cancer. I would use the word to the patient. It's the disease that's causing your discomfort or your distress. Of course, the patient knew they had cancer. Of course, the patient knew they were dying, but that's not the language they wanted to hear. And they knew I knew. (laughs) It was kind of a little lie with each other, but you cannot help that patient if you get closed out by the family because if you then say, I have to tell the patient, which actually you do in a different way, you're respectful, you don't tell the patient, and that patient just trusts you anyway. 
they know that they've got a terminal disease. They feel that they're not getting any better. Yeah, that reminds me of how you can phrase different things to, and the patient's perspective is changed completely by the way that you phrase something or the language that you use. I remember, for example, coming across a patient with cancer and she absolutely did not want to undergo chemotherapy, but the doctors changed their phrasing and their description of what chemotherapy involved, and this completely changed her perspective on what it was. I think the phrase I used is that it's a deep cleansing of the body, and this completely changed her view of whether or not to undergo chemotherapy or not. Secondly, another question I wanted to ask is, what is the role of shared decision-making in palliative care? This country is quite different to the countries I worked in. Shared decision-making is is something you must undertake firstly with the family, mostly because these patients weren't in hospices, they were at home. So you had to rely on the family member to administer whatever you had prescribed. So you had to have them agreeing and understanding what they had to give to that patient when you weren't there. Obviously, the nursing staff could also do that, but you needed to have the family on board. The biggest barrier that we had with that in these countries was the fact that morphine was considered death. If you take morphine, you're dying. You can't use that word for the patient. And that also is the same a little bit here in this country, although it's changed a lot in the last 10 to 15 years. So you had to then do a little bit, as as you just said, about chemotherapy. Use a different word. Have the family understand that, you know, we all have a little bit of so-called morphine in our system. We increase the secretion of it when we're in pain and we're just topping up. If you use that sort of approach with a patient and their family, it's accepted. We're just helping you a little bit more because the body's a little bit tired of having to do this and your pain is a lot. And we call it not morphine, that's for sure. We'll call it by the brand name. They have no idea that that's morphine. And then if you can get 24 to 48 hours of successful response to that drug, you won't have any more problems with that. It's just getting over that first barrier of patients saying, oh, my goodness, I'm going to die, I'm taking morphine. And that is a very common thing in these countries and a little bit here as well. That's it. I'm on my last legs. Whereas, you know, I love morphine for lots of reasons. It's great. It's a great drug. But the general public don't see it that way. They see it as a last, a last step towards death, which it isn't. But you have to work an awful lot on your communication skills to be able over a couple of days to get, you don't do it all in one, one session. You do it in a couple of meetings with patients and families so they can digest all the information you're giving them and finally come around to even asking you. If you've done it very well, they ask you to give the patient morphine. It's very, very weird, but it is a very good communication skill that you can have. And that you use also in the communication of a, of a terminal diagnosis. There's skills that you need to know to be able to have the patient on board relaxed and happy about what you're doing. It takes a bit of time. You mentioned the stigma around morphine. Where do you think that that stigma comes from? And do you think it's different throughout different cultures? It's extremely different throughout different cultures. It's, ex it's very well accepted in an Anglo-Saxon culture. It is not very well accepted in a Latin culture or in some religious orders as well. So we found in Poland is a very Catholic country and in Italy. Albania, you have a mix of Muslim, Greek Orthodox, and Christian. 
And I would say all of those have a, a mental barrier towards the use of the word morphine. They consider it to be unbelievably strong and it will certainly render you unconscious, which is not true, of course, and you're about to die. I've had patients say to me, before you give me this, I want to have my last words with my family. And I said, but I'm not going to render you unconscious. This drug will not do that. It's a very, very big problem. You can't go in like all at a thing. As you would hear to a patient, one would walk up to the patient and say, we're not getting anywhere with your pain relief. We're going to put you on morphine because it's the drug for you and it will certainly make you feel better. Um, what do you use? You'll have you, you'll go through that pretty rapidly, but you cannot do that in these countries. You have to take your time, and unfortunately, you may even have to have a patient suffering more a day or two before you can actually get that program in before you can initiate using morphine because you have patient resistant, you have family resistance. They won't give it to the patient anyway, and that will happen also in uh, healthcare institutions. They won't allow it. The family has a very strong input over what happens to their loved one, which legally here is not permitted unless that's been taken care of. But overseas, you must do it. You have no choice in the countries that I've mentioned. Have you noticed that there is a difference between the religions on how they view death and dying? For example, do any particular cultures view it in a more positive light? No. No one views it in a more positive light. I would say that in the Christian cultures, they would take it as I have to suffer. That's part of what I have to do. In the others I've mentioned, it's still generally considered taboo. It's also, there's also a heavy bias towards it because of drug addiction. In some of the more affluent societies, you will find that they consider, gosh, I'm not a drug addict. I don't want to become addicted to it. That is also a problem. More so, it's the social stigma that goes with it. And the religious part behind it, but it's very much of don't we don't want any you if they find out they're on morphine, they'll know they're going to die. So it goes hand in hand with the fact that the patient doesn't know their diagnosis. You add morphine onto that, and for them it's the end. You can't do this. It takes a long time to get through patient and the family lack of wishing to to have this drug used, and it's it's a real problem. It is slowly getting better, but I would say 20 years ago it was hard work to get some sort of compliance there. And also it, you didn't also have access to the sort of opioids we have today. A lot of these countries just had morphine in powder form, which was very volatile. So you were never, ever sure as to actually what the dosage was your patient was assuming. And it would have a very short half-life, so it already does have a very short half-life, so you would have to be having administrations every three to four hours and you didn't know where the patient was accumulating it. You never know exactly if your dosage was the dosage that you were prescribing because of the volatility of the morphine powder itself. The access to injectable morphine was also very tricky. Often the ampules were not sterile, so we had lots and lots of issues. You also mentioned that there could be resistance from the patient's family members into prescribing morphine. If the patient themselves is unable to communicate their wishes, must you always respect the relative's wishes or are there cases where you can override this? Don't misunderstand me. Under no circumstances is it morally acceptable for any medical practitioner to allow a patient to suffer because of social, let's put it in inverted commas, ignorance. 
You have to find a way in your communication to be able to get to the end of that. I have never had that issue that we're never able to administer it. It just took longer to get to the point because the patient doesn't want to suffer and they've suffered so much and they're at the end of their tether. They actually will take it in the long run. It's just getting through the stigma and having the family trust you, listening to them. You mustn't actually push it down their necks. And as I say, these good communication skills can take two or three days or visits to get the message through. Thinking back to your work with Lady Ryder, is there anything in particular that she did that really exemplifies good communication and good use of language in palliative care? Sue Ryder was an absolutely unique person. If you think of it, she started the first hospices in this country in the 1950s, which were just to general medical care. They, they weren't classified. And she never, ever called them hospices, by the way. She called them homes. I don't think people are aware of how much she actually did. But she had this innate ability. Anywhere she went, I would stand back and watch her, and she would be kneeling on, on the dirt in Ethiopia calming a mother with a child dying of hunger or she would get up on a bed with a patient in Albania who was really quite in terrible sanitary conditions. She gave no look at that whatsoever and she would just smile and look at that patient. She didn't look at the family. She didn't look at anything else but that patient who was suffering and she could communicate so well in just looking at them with a tenderness and um, comfort and the patient who seemed to be just there on the bed usually terribly depressed and so not looking at us at all would then come around and look at her with their glance and she relieved so much more than you would imagine that she got the message across her empathy was amazing she said I'm here I understand and we're ready to help you and I've seen families who couldn't, she couldn't speak the language, and I've seen families just break down in tears because that patient took some interest in life again and at her and wouldn't let her hand go. She sat with patients for two, three hours she'd never met before and couldn't talk to them. She just looked at them. She was amazing, just amazing. She taught me an awful lot. She really was an extraordinary person, wasn't she? Oh, yes, absolutely. Mind you, she was a feisty one. You wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of her. <laughs> she would fight a corner for against suffering. You, you had no chance. <laughs> Unless you yourself were suffering and then she would change, absolutely. What would be a good message to take home from her work, which perhaps isn't taught often enough in medical school? Fortunately, at Bristol it is taught very well, I have to say, but not in all universities and certainly... It varies. I remember my last lesson to my professor in general medicine before my exams, my final exams, and he stood up and he said to me, I've taught you everything I know. I can't teach you anything more. However, there's one bit of advice I can give you, and it, it's always worked for me throughout my professional life. The person who's going to tell you what they have and give you the diagnosis and how to talk to them is the patient. So one thing you've got to learn is to listen, but not only listen to the patient, but also believe them. And I think today that is a very good piece of advice for any medical student, because that patient, if you look at them 
and listen to them. They give you all the signs and symptoms, and that is also for the treatment of pain. Uh, and you'll get, get, give them the right answers and know what's wrong with them. So it's, I would definitely advise any medical student before they get to their final year to try and have a good few lectures, go anywhere, any hospice movement will give them into communication and try and seek out someone who actually can give you some lessons in communication of a terminal diagnosis, which is a really tricky thing to do because you're not taught how to do it and it can be really hard for you and, it, and, a, very, and a very poorly lived moment for the patient. And that can make them very, very upset and suffer much more than they need to physically. Yes, I can imagine these are all very difficult conversations to have, even for the most experienced medical professionals. How do you think palliative care has evolved since Lady Ryder's time? Oh, it's gone ahead in leaps and bounds. I would have thought the whole movement itself has surpassed what she started it started in the mid-80s and, and was really, really moving along very quickly in the late 90s and turn of the century. There's been a big push by palliative medicine specialists to, in general, have pain and recognition of pain measured, treated. Lots of research has gone into that and now an awful lot has gone into the study of uh, genomes and pain relief because we're starting to learn that as well, that each person, according to their genomes, have a pain response to different opioids, quite different to what we thought. So as in many other things in pharmacology and medicine. If I think of that today and I think of patients who, who I have seen have been given opioids and they're hallucinating, then they've got terrible constipation, they're, they're vomiting, that's how it all started and how we were treating that, and then we had to work out exactly what we had to do and what sort of opioids we had to use. Today, it's very much easier. It's it's a walk in the park, and it has evolved very, very quickly. So it's a, it's a palliative care setting that Lady Ryder would never have imagined, I'm sure. Her biggest problem was getting patients into a clean bed and getting a bit of pain relief to them. And now it's something quite different. You have your specialised team working as a team around that patient with all your own specialities involved and that patient is extremely well cared for. But that's very new. And in this country, it's considered to be normal. But in many countries, it's still not like that. And there is also now a big stigma in a lot of Latin countries for the word hospice, for example. They won't go to one because that means where you go and die. So there's a bigger response to palliative care in those countries on a domiciliary basis. What do you think has been Lady Ryder's main impact in the world of palliative care medicine? I think it's extended because she didn't see herself as exclusive to palliative care because she started straight after the Second World War just trying to relieve suffering. Her involvement in the war, she was in the Fannies and she even enlisted when she was 17 she lied about her age. And she was behind enemy lines when she was 18 and a half. So it was quite something. She ended up in Poland at the end of the war. So you can imagine how ravaged that country was. And what she saw and the horrifying events that she must have seen, which she was not keen at all to talk about and refused to talk about very eagerly. 
But what she did do was try and help the people in Poland because most of the population had either emigrated, if they were well enough, but the population who was sick, wounded, dying, dying of hunger, were just left. No one was there to care for them. So she came back to the UK and bullied everybody to raise money to go back to Poland and build their first hospital. So she is very, very, she is Lady Ryder of Warsaw. She chose that title because she is so well-remembered and, and well-loved there still to this day. And now, today, they have about 18 Sea Rider homes in Poland. And they first started there than that before they started here in the UK. And they were set up just to get people off the streets and, and relieve their suffering. There were people who were maimed and hungry and, and dying of disease. And she got them off the streets and got them into there. So she wouldn't, she didn't start thinking that. She just started thinking to relieve suffering in general. And she remained with that ethos. Palliative care was just part of that. In the UK now, of course, you have all the Sue Ryder homes. Who, some of them are specialised in different things. She started all of those here as well, but a bit later on before she started them in Poland. But she was never very fond of the word hospice and never very fond of that sort of thing. So a lot of the homes that she has overseas, and she has numerous, she would respond to what the local need was, where the local governments were not responding to. So she would go and see what was not happening and then make it happen. Of course, she put up these homes in Poland during communist control. So she managed, and no one ever asked uh, how, but uh, she was a very firm Catholic and her faith carried her through her whole life. She managed to get behind the Iron Curtain regularly, in and out, and she would start building these homes. And it's very bizarre to go and see these homes because they look like any Surider home in this country. <laughs> They're red bricks. They're quite different to anything else in the countryside around them because she brought everything from the UK over to Poland when she was building because they had nothing still. We're talking about you know regimes who were very poor. And the only way she could let them agree to let her build these things is that she had to donate the home to the state and then she would then be allowed to oversee the running of it. It was the only way she could do it. And to this day, all these homes belong to the state and they are state-run, but they're there and they're still going, so something she did right. And the same thing happened in, in ex-Yugoslavia, but most of them were destroyed by the war. The home she had in India is still going very strong. And they have homes all over, well, there are homes all over the world. And I don't think most people know that, but it's very interesting to go on onto our website as a trust, the Lady Rider of Warsaw Trust, and just to see where she worked, because that's the international side of her work. And of course, to go onto the Sue Rider uh, National Charity to see what they do in this country, but they're two different, completely different charities and overseeing different things. And each charity in each country is independent. So her name is being carried on by the people of that country. It's quite cool to see, actually. She set up quite a good network that is now still carrying on. It's 20 years since she died. Yeah, she definitely did have a very big impact. I see the charity shops everywhere I go, so that's just a reminder of everything that she did. Well, that was her idea because the charity shop was very rightly so copied by a lot of other charities and they worked very well. But she did that on a business plan with an organisation that reflected her experience in the armed forces, and it was extremely well run. Nothing was ever wasted in the Rider Foundation, ever. Everything was kept and reused. The organisation of the homes, there are over 50 of them, is still very much military-like, 
and her imprint on that is amazing. And the success of those shops means the success of the homes because the income from those is fundamental in keeping them going. She was quite unique in what she did and people don't know about it. Because I worked with her so long, obviously, and I'm getting long in the tooth now, I can keep that message up. We've just published a book, a biography about her life. It's a very short book. And it's amazing to read it and see what she's done. And she would always just say, for the good that I can do. But she was absolutely lived to her last breath, trying to keep everything running to support the people that were suffering in the world. Just thinking back to your past experiences, what has been the biggest thing that you've learnt from working with those who are dying, those who are in pain and those who are suffering? A lot of it's all based on communication skills. I never go and see a patient looking like a medical professional. That's my first piece of advice to someone who's suffering a lot, basically because there's been an awful lot of those people wearing white coats gone before myself in that patient's life, and they've all failed because they're dying. So they don't trust you anymore. That's one of the most important things that I learned very early is to be very calm and quiet in front of a patient and sit and listen. I've had some pretty hard experiences. I have, but obviously the patient far more. I had a patient in Italy, a child, who was in a pediatric hospital, um, who was in care, so no parents, and was in immense pain, told his aesthetic pain where he could not, tol- he was only seven, could not tolerate, he was, had, had leukemia, could not tolerate anything, any, anything on his body. So that is very severe pain, very acute pain. And the team couldn't get near him in the hospital because they had uniforms on. Obviously, we're in a hospital setting. This child was terrified. They rang up to the foundation in Italy and asked if I could go see this patient. I have a premise in this is that the hospital was also a religious hospital, so I had to be also very careful how I behaved. The child was in a private room. And I slowly opened the door. He took one look at me and started screaming hysterically. Pediatrician there said to me, this is what he does and we can't get near him. He hasn't eaten, he hasn't drunk. He's been like this for 48 hours. We cannot get near him. We cannot just sedate him to the nth degree because we cannot get near him and I don't want to hold him down while he's kicking and screaming. But he was in intense dysesthetic pain. So this kid is completely nude on the bed and it's cold nothing on him. So I went back home and got my dog, who fortunately was a very well-trained dog. I went there with my dog and opened the door and made the dog understand it had to go in on all haunches, not to walk in. So it sort of went in on all haunches to this little boy and he was just about to scream, but he saw the door close and the dog come in. And the dog got up to him and he started to touch it and pat it. And the dog stayed in remissive mode because I was round the corner giving it the right directions to stay in a remissive position. I then opened the door and I just had civvies on, obviously. And I went in on my hands and knees just like the dog and I mimicked the dog and he started to laugh. And that was the beginning of getting that kid some help. All the professional help was there, but it was getting him to accept that We weren't all like that. We weren't people who held him down and stuck needles into him and all this sort of thing. And, of course, it all ended up for him, obviously, very well because he actually went into remission and we weren't able to 
to relieve his pain to a very good degree and get him drinking. But it's just a very stark example. All patients are like that little boy. You just have to understand how to get in there and get their confidence and how you can help them. So if you understand that actually mentally you're going in to see the patient on all fours to gain their confidence, that's one of the best ways you can do it. If you have that in your head, that patient will ask you to help them and will be very willing to listen and, and be truthful. You have to be truthful, but you have to choose your pros and choose your methods and mannerisms very carefully. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to finish on. I've had relatives tell me that when they've been in hospital, it's the small things like the junior doctors introducing themselves by their first name, which helps to build a rapport. And it just makes the doctors seem more humanised in a way. I guess it's those little things that can really help. Thank you so much, Dr. Welshman, for your time. And you've offered a lot of really good insights on this topic which I think uh, there's a lot to learn for both medical students like me and for medical professionals in general, regardless of whether they're working in palliative care or not. Uh, So it's been a really great speaking to you today and thank you for your time. Thank you. It's lovely. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Medicine 360 podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode on palliative care, You may also be interested in one of our previous episodes called Death and Dying, which you can find by visiting medicine360.co.uk. To find out more about the continuation of Sue Ryder's outstanding work, you can visit the Lady Ryder Warsaw Memorial Trust's website. 